0: The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing.
1: Almost a quarter of a century now since the Good Friday Accord and Northern Ireland is facing a breakdown
2: in everything that achieved. The province's government hasn't functioned since February and it's facing its second election in a year. No one expects another vote to solve anything and the Secretary of State has for the moment put it on hold everyone's holding their breath.
1: So what's the problem? Well, the Northern Ireland protocol that came out of the Brexit agreement, if you're not in the EU customs union, there has to be a border where goods are checked. A hard border between the province and the Irish Republic is unacceptable for London, Brussels, Dublin
2: and Washington. But the border the protocol put in place in the Irish sea between the province and mainland Britain is unacceptable to unionists who insist the UK is one country and they won't take part in government until it's sorted out. So what happened? Happens now, and what are the
1: risks that the frustrations on both sides will lead us back to the days of the trouble? That's the subject
2: of today's episode.
0: The why curve.
2: So, I mean, the question is, uh, Roger, is it all Brexit that is causing this problem? Or is this just well, something that was never fully resolved? We sort of, it was the Good Friday Agreement sort of like the... You know, a, a, an interim solution to to something that's been going on. Well, for well it was. It, it, there's, there's a history. Obviously, there's always a history with it it's mm. Ireland. But 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 the history was that the general
1: assumption had been if we'd stayed in the EU, that because the EU would effectively make life the same both sides of the then border on mm. the on the island of Ireland, the idea that oh, they had to be separate from the Republic or that they had to be joined up would become irrelevant because yeah. life would just be exactly the same. And I used to drive across that border. Nothing, nothing there. Essentially, yeah. you just well, get people a couple, still are. So yeah. if
2: you look at the traffic numbers, they're they're, they're pretty much the same as they were before. But, but, but if you are
1: moving goods around and you're not in a customs union at some point you've got to have a border somewhere. Well they have to be Mm -hmm. checked and I mean you really, I mean there's been this whole thing where the government at one point saying, oh well there'll be these lovely uh, technological methods very clever methods of checking goods without stopping at the border. Michael
2: Gove kept going on about that. No sign of it. But how much of it is just an excuse? How much I mean uh, absolutely there's a a problem. We can see the numbers, the trade numbers are down and there's there's a lot less trade between Northern Ireland and and mainland Britain. But how much of this is being used as an excuse by the unionists to say, well, you know, we're still not happy with the situation, irrespective of Brexit?
1: I think think there's something in it because... the unionists now—the last election—and they seem to be moving towards another one, possibly. But the last election, for the first time, meant there was not a majority unionist vote. There is yeah. not a unionist majority in the assembly. So uh, this is, in effect, the nightmare—the the demographic time bomb they always talked about—that because the nationalist community tend to produce more children, mm. in the end the numbers would it would would move to the point where they would have a majority in Northern Ireland. Of course, there's always been the idea of the border referendum at some point when the majority of people
2: in the north wanted because that was the problem wasn't it with the whole uh, situation in Ireland it was just inbred hatred passed on from generation to generation Ah, that's uh, well
1: I think that is a huge cliche to be honest I mean you know obviously there were very very big doubts and concerns and rivalries and a whole issue going way back of course partly religious but I mean Religion doesn't really count these days, right? But
2: partly just but, a I mean sense, it was really always seen and well, built as a religious war, it wasn't was it? Protestant I mean. versus Catholics, and uh, and yeah. that's why I talked about the you know it being ingrained. It's it's cultures, I think, rather than the religion. But it's mm. it's essentially
1: a, a fear of the other, a fear of a, a concern about being dominated by the other with different ideas, different
2: culture, different outlook, right. and that they would get pushed out. But if it's not religion, if so, if it's the if it's the difference between the Irish. Lifestyle versus the British oh. lifestyle. I mean, we are just the same people no. at the end of the day. Uh, Why uh, the it, concern? Well,
1: it, it is it, there is prejudice. Of course there's prejudice. And that's what's at the root of it. A sense of being
2: pushed out
1: by another community, which you see as other, even if they're not
2: really right, other. But the Irish culture and the British culture have got to be, t- if you're looking for two cultures which are the closest, they've got to be the closest, yeah, don't they? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's an artificial division. There's no question about this. Mm.
1: But it, if there's very, very deep. Uh, roots in the communities there. And right. one one community, particularly now the unionist community, feeling that they are being pushed out, that there's a lot of uh, a lot of working class unionists who feel that perhaps they're losing jobs. I mean, the prospects of, of getting a job, the economics realities are,
2: in a trade. sense, worse for that right. community than the others. So do you think then, and we'll talk to somebody who knows a lot more, who's in situ uh, in, in Belfast in, in just a second, but do you think now then that the whole issue about the, the religion and all the other differences that exist this have subsided, and we were heading in the right direction, and now this has just become a question of trade. Uh, I,
1: I think I think you are partly right that it is an excuse. I mean, it's obviously tapping into other things, but clearly this is pushing it hard, and people are noticing, you know, where they can't get goods in the shops or whatever it is. That is giving them issues, and for the loyalists of the unionist community, the fact of something that makes them
2: different and separate from the rest of the United Kingdom is a no-go area, as far as they're concerned. Right. Okay. Well, it certainly is impacting trade. I'll give you some numbers in just a second, but Let's talk to Katie Hayward. Uh, she's a professor of political psychology at Queen's University in Belfast. Katie, when um, Brexit was being discussed all those years ago, did you foresee the problems that we're facing now? Because, I mean, politicians of any persuasion weren't talking about this then, were they? As though, you know, this has all come as a surprise. But to me, it looks like, you know, at the time even, it seemed like the... Yeah, the, 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 the border issue
1: was always going to be there because of the uh, of the Customs Union. I mean, that must have been foreseen the implications for Northern Ireland, is that right?
0: So it wasn't really discussed, you have to say. I mean, it wasn't an issue that was raised... I'm conscious of it not being raised really in Britain at all. It was something we were very aware of here. I mean, in the first instance, you do have the question of where the border controls would be and what form they would take, recognizing that if the UK did leave the Single Market customs Union, there would be border checks and controls. But I think more broadly here as well, there was a deeper, wider recognition of the significance of leaving the EU for Northern Ireland, given that the peace process in Northern Ireland is so dependent on that close relationship between Britain and Ireland and the minimization of differences between them over time in policy terms, regulation, et cetera, that that's been a useful context for the peace process. So even though um, people had different perspectives on Brexit and the EU, I think there was recognition that it would be a significant vote if it was for Brexit. For um, the future of Northern Ireland, more broadly, so
2: some people would argue that Northern Ireland actually has got the best of both worlds. In that, um, you know, if you could, res- if we could resolve this issue about uh, a trade with the uh, with the UK mainland, which is which has really taken a hit, and I'll give some numbers on that. But it's, but I mean, you you've got the opportunity to trade with the United Kingdom, the rest of the United Kingdom, and to trade within the EU as well. It's you know, it's a double win, isn't it?
0: I mean, there's definitely benefits from dual market access, yes. Yeah, so Northern Ireland is the only place that has free access to the UK internal market and free access to the EU single market. That's definitely true. I think there's a bit of a danger, though, in the best of both worlds narrative um, because it tends to downplay or overlook those frictions that also come Um, as you mentioned in trade with GB, um, but also in north-south relationships too. And I think it would be easy to overlook the fact that the Irish border is getting harder as a consequence of Brexit, not in relation to the movement of goods necessarily, but in other ways. And we will see that increasingly happen over time, particularly if um, the UK continues, as it seems to be doing to go towards a route of deregulation and moving further and further away from EU standards, and because that brings is challenges. Is it tapping to into?
1: Forward. I mean, one interesting question is: it's almost 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, the the Belfast Agreement, that set all uh, set Northern Ireland on its current course. Are the tensions that lay behind the years of the troubles that many people felt they were they must have been diluted by the years of relatively successful uh, devolved government, uh, getting things done, return of normalization. I mean, have those things just not got, never gone away? They're still there. Those tensions still remain.
0: I mean, there's definitely continued to be tensions. I mean, the paramilitary organizations have continued to have a function which is terribly sad to say but they've continued to exist in in different ways um particularly affecting communities suffering from multiple deprivation the poorest communities so that's that's there and people are often shocked when they come to Belfast in particular and seeing the peace walls so called that still exist between communities so you've got that but also you've got the fact that the constitutional future of northern ireland wasn't, of course, settled by the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. That's sort of the point of it. And as a consequence of that, tensions between unionism and nationalism remained sort of live. And this is why I think the whole Brexit debate and process has been quite so fractious here, because, of course, you're talking about Northern Ireland's relationship with Ireland and with Britain. And when you're putting those in tension, then, of course, it gets right to the heart of the conflict here. And hence we we are where we are at the moment, I think, with um the future of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement seeing um seeming to be sadly very much in doubt, given the the fact that the institutions aren't up and running again and it's hard to see how they how that might happen anytime soon. So it's
2: always described as a as a religious conflict between Protestants and Catholics and, I mean, is that still, does that, is religion still a part of it? Because, you know, looking at the numbers, religion, like everywhere in the world, is becoming less popular uh, both sides of the border. Because you know, looking at it externally, you know, I, I, I can't see the, the, the people of Northern Ireland being any different to the people of the Republic of Ireland and actually really not that different to the people of England, Scotland or Wales either. I mean, if you're looking at uh, two areas of the world where people are the closest, you'd have to say it's between Ireland and the United Kingdom, isn't it? I mean, we, you know, a, lo- a lot of shared values.
0: Yeah, and that point about the interconnections between Britain and Ireland and how many Irish people live in Britain or have relatives in Britain and vice versa. I mean that's that's often made and it's an important one. Mm. I think Northern Ireland is a very particular place. And of course, you know, the the partition of Ireland a hundred years ago and then the um attempts to manage difference within Northern Ireland have of course been you know had had consequences and we've seen them very negatively. In the history of Northern Ireland, and the question of where the secularisation might have placed some part in ameliorating differences, well, I think it goes back to the question of what those differences are, and fundamentally, the tension is around the the you know where Northern Ireland constitutionally sits. And interestingly enough, um, in the maybe ten years ago, like before the Brexit referendum, we were definitely seeing. A sense of stability. Things weren't great and there were issues around legacy and paramilitarism, etc. But there was a sort of a sense that things were calm and there wasn't a push for Irish unification anytime soon. Um, However, since that time, we have seen a rising proportion of Catholics describing themselves as nationalist and increasingly describing themselves as strong nationalists. And similarly, amongst Protestants, we've seen an uptick in those describing themselves as unionist, um, and saying that they are less in favour of Irish unification even than they were before. So we have that polarisation um, going on, and I really couldn't stress enough how important the sort of the and, political dynamics here and is it are.
1: In part, we, Katie, also the fact that the unionist the community feels that it is diminishing in numbers, because I mean, it was very striking in the elections this year. I think I'm right in saying for the first time there were a majority of uh, that the biggest party was a, a, a nationalist party, um, the Sinn Féin, and, and the, the
2: sense that their majority, the inherent majority of unionism in Northern Ireland is going. But they, and Sinn Féin went into those elections, didn't they, not really pushing the, uh, uh, the argument of a united Ireland too, too strongly? No,
1: no. Well, they, they want to win over, I guess, the, the many unionists as they can or people of that community. But mm. they're now becoming a minority.
0: Yes, so certainly for unionism, it is an unnerving time. So you've got lots of things to be worried about. You know, obviously, the protocol is a significant thing and the whole Brexit process. What's happening in Scotland is also unnerving to some degree. But you look at the census results here in Northern Ireland and for the first time, um, Catholics outnumber Protestants. Mm. And bearing in mind that Northern Ireland was created to have a Protestant majority, that in and of itself is very significant. Obviously the success of Sinn Féin uh, becoming the largest party in the elections there is also a big blow. And the fact that Sinn Féin are also doing very well in, in polling in the South in Republic of Ireland and looks set to form the government in the next election there, um, if, if nothing dramatic changes. So it's, it is a worrying time for unionism. And I think that helps us understand why it is that we are seeing the intensity of feeling with respect to the protocol. Mm. Um, because there is a sense of insecurity in in a changing UK union. Now, can I ask a scandalous question, Katie? Why <laughs>
2: why are unionists so keen to stay in the United Kingdom? What what would be wrong with a, a United Ireland?
0: <laughs> well, you're you're probably asking the wrong person there. <laughs> <laughs> to but actually, you sort of touch on a point. So one thing that is quite um, interesting in Northern Ireland is. You know, still the, the plurality of people say they have a British identity. Now, British-only identity has diminished since the last census, but people saying they're British and something else is still the plurality, around 42%. Um, and that Britishness remains very important to, uh, to such people. They can move to Barnsley. Northern Ireland is different to... Um, is different to the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, but the, but the bigger question of what is what is the union and try and describe Britishness, mm. particularly, post-Brexit, um, uh, particularly uh, post
1: Brexit, and particularly post the the move towards more talk of independence in Scotland as well. I mean that that's part absolutely. of it
0: too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know what does the UK union look like if we do have um, Scottish independence? And, and I think, of course, I mean one thing that's been really interesting in some of our polling on the protocol is how low the levels of trust are in the UK government when it comes to managing Northern Ireland's interests for the protocol. So mm. that, that that polling is around, you know, four to seven percent say that they trust the UK government. Mm. So essentially what we're seeing there is that unionists do not trust the British government. With,
1: and, the, and there's a paradox <laughs> the in that, in the, is, the sense that yes. the whole point of unionism is to be one with the government with, with the country represented by the government they don't trust. So,
2: it, I mean, could it be over time then that the, the, the union unionist argument is lost? And, and in fact, you know, we do start moving towards the the, the situation where we do get a, a, a one united island. Ireland. A united Ireland.
0: I mean, so uh, we would have, according to the Good Friday Ava's agreement, we would have to have a situation in which the UK government calls such a border poll and they're obliged to call it if they if it looks likely that there's a majority in Northern Ireland who would vote in favour of Irish unity. Um, by the way, they could also call it at any point, It's mm. sort of up to the discretion of the Secretary of State. But let's presume they do it if they see there's a majority um, likely to be in support of unification. The question is, on what basis would the UK government make that decision? And this is why, as well, we see a desire amongst unionist parties to try and coalesce around big issues that seem to be of threat to the union because we should recognize there's a lot of diversity amongst the protestant population in northern ireland including generational and there's also a lot of diversity amongst unionists so for some unionists northern irish identity is much more important to them than british identity but still it's that connection to to britain and that is hard to maintain when you know you're not particularly warmly loved Mm. by britain Mm. and indeed you know we saw a lot of those polls during the brexit process about how willing english voters particularly brexit voters would be to see scotland independent and northern ireland in united ireland so that sort of debate is is ongoing at the moment and hence i think we see a lot of focus around the protocol which an oppositional point seems to be something at least clear that they can say okay this is This is a clear block of unionists are opposed to something and um, trying to appeal to the UK government to make a firm stance as demonstrating the UK government's concern for the union as a whole. But you can't help think that having been let down many times before, this might be ultimately one on which unionists are let down again, certainly in terms of the expectations they have around what's possible this time.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the hit to trade would be one of those uh, senses of disappointment, wouldn't it? Because in 2016, 14.2 billion pounds in sales to, uh, to the rest of the UK from Northern Ireland in 2019. Ten point nine billion. So that is a twenty-five yeah. percent drop in trade, basically. Whilst exports to Europe, so you talk about you know the best of both worlds, they haven't really moved up much. And the, where there has been growth is the rest of the world exports, which has increased by seven hundred million. So rather than sending stuff across the I R C, they're sending it outside Europe altogether, but not enough to to bridge that gap in in trade that's been lost. So Northern Ireland is definitely paying a price for this. But but, but
1: also, Katie, I mean, I certainly. Uh, heard from uh, unionist farmers near the border with, uh, with with the Republic, who were saying at one point the advantages of being able to move goods to the Republic to sell them into the EU that way were very big and actually making some of them question, in a sense, their opposition to um to to having United Ireland. No, but the numbers are not showing that. Well, though. not showing that, but they were mm. anecdotally they were saying they were they were liking the idea of being mm. able to export via Dublin. So maybe that's changing sentiment as well.
0: I mean, it's difficult because the statistics that we have uh, in detail on east-west movement of goods is out of date. So we we don't have anything post-protocol that can enable us to say, okay, what is Northern Ireland's uh, export pattern look like and what does its sales with GB look like? Um, I mean, we have got... We have quite regular data from the Central Statistics Office in the Republic of Ireland, which would suggest that north-south movement of goods in both directions has considerably increased All right, okay. in the last couple of years. Um, but also we've seen actually movement of goods through um, the, the ports in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland. 2GB has also increased, and I suspect that's a lot to do with Um, avoiding the checks and controls um, between Dublin and Holyhead, for example. So it's a really complicated picture. But fundamentally, I mean, no matter what people's political viewpoints, the thing that we were hearing very clearly um, in Northern Ireland during the whole Brexit withdrawal process was people didn't want borders, north, south or east, west. They kind of wanted things to remain as much the same as they possibly could. And I think this is the hope even in the talks on the protocol at the moment, that they can minimise those east-west frictions in a way that makes it as much like pre-Brexit trade as possible. Right, but only
2: asking for something which is undeliverable. I mean, there has, there has to be a border somewhere. So as long as that, as long as they're asking for something which is undeliverable, then the problem's going to go on forever, isn't it?
0: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there has to be a management of expectations. And this comes back to the fundamental point around people recognising you know, what Brexit means and why it does entail checks and controls and paperwork on the movement of goods um, and obviously friction in relation to services, etc. Yeah. So the consequences of leaving the uh, single market and customs union. And I think what we see in Northern Ireland is, and the debate around the protocol is still a reluctance to kind of uh, accept that or really confront that. And this is why there's a lot of distraction around sort of technological solutions, Yeah, et cetera. Which But pledges the the that they day, could do they it in ways to. that they but, really but maybe. Can't. The, yeah. But
2: what if there are ways that you can reduce the, the the cost? Because part that is part of it, isn't it? The Department of uh, uh, So Desvera, the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, they said last year companies were facing what, uh, two, £260 million in extra costs to carry goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and that was pretty much the profit that was made from all of that trade. So, the, hence, companies are not keen to... Uh, to, to Deal with that trade across the uh, across the Irish Sea, so. But if that was reduced, you know, we had the, the trusted trader scheme, for example, worked better, and there were other ways of reducing those costs and maybe simplifying the the process. So that border still existed, but it wasn't as bad. It wasn't as onerous. Would people be satisfied? Well, the, or you, it just the ice wouldn't
1: accept it? The DUP wouldn't accept that,
2: would they? Well, but there has to be a sense of realism at some point, though, doesn't there? That there's no other alternative, and realism
1: uh, doesn't isn't always a powerful player in Northern Ireland. I mean, Katie, would that be a way Forward. yeah.
0: Well, let me just address that point around the costs on moving to goods. So, that would be if we had all the grace periods ended and the full implementation of the protocol as was originally anticipated, which we haven't got at the moment. Mm. Um, and you're right to mention DEFRA because the, the bulk of the friction and the costs and the checks and controls, I mean the the complexity of all that all of that really is around plant and, and animal products and this is a bigger question because if the uk for example decided to have a veterinary agreement an sps agreement with the eu that would immediately resolve 95 percent of those issues mm. um and the fact that the uk as just won't countenance that at all is also telling us a few things not least of which um what the uk itself has prepared for its own um, farmers and exporters to have to put up with in exporting to, to the EU. And and I think we're not really sort of facing that very often, you know, the cost that is, that is occurring to within um, GB, even with respect to those with that area of trade. Um, but you're right, okay, so to focus on if we waved a magic wand and there was a massive reduction in the anticipated checks and controls and those costs were minimized, what would public opinion say? And here you're you're touching on something really key. So we've been doing opinion polling. This is my colleague, David Finnemore and I, um, in in Queens on the protocol. And what we've seen over time is that um, basically unionist position has become harder. Mm. So now it looks as though, it, so for example, we had 30% of respondents in our last poll there in October saying Um, They don't think the Northern Ireland executive should get up and running again until the protocol is scrapped altogether. Which
1: is the DUP position, isn't it?
0: No, actually, funny enough, it it isn't. Ah. Um, The DUP DUP have a very careful phrasing, which is replace the protocol with arrangements that preserve Northern Ireland's place in the UK union and internal market. So uh, they haven't really been pinned down in exactly what they would accept, you know, as a satisfactory replacement.
1: So unionist um, opinion is out ahead, even harder than than even than, yes. than DUP position. So how dangerous Definitely. is is all this, Katie? Because we I mean, were talking technical things, but you know there is a kind of powder keg. I mean, do you yes. think really that there could be a return to? Political violence. So we certainly saw intimidation at ports, uh, I think it was last year, in relation to this, which suggested that might
2: happen and again. And unionists are not going to go as far as to say, well, we'll lose that border uh, if it, and you know, we'll accept a, a border uh, across the island of Ireland. They wouldn't go that far, would they?
1: Well, unionists would accept it, I guess. But the yeah, so nationalists said, certainly wouldn't.
0: Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that if the further people live away from the border, Northern Ireland isn't a big place, um, and obviously if them the unionists they're more willing to see a harder Irish land border. But this is because and oftentimes when you're talking about borders, it is around principle rather than the mm. details that, that we've just been discussing there on the and you know the practicalities of it. It's around the principle. And this is why we see the unionist position being so hard. And would now. people be
1: willing to go on that point, go back to yeah. the gun to defend that yeah. principle?
0: Well, um, uh, so what has been notable in the past while is whenever you have a situation where it looks as though the UK and the EU are at a critical point, maybe in talks or discussions around the protocol, or it seems as though the UK is making a decision on the stance it's going to take, Going to take, you have headlines here in Northern Ireland, s- such as we had um, the weekend before last, saying... Um paramilitary organisations are reviewing their ceasefires. Um, and, you know, um, there's a there's a say, statement that the Northern Ireland office making a strong statement um, in contravention to something that a, a nationalist politician had said that that prevented an attack on an Irish government minister. This kind of thing, you, it's very much in the in the mix and it gets a lot of media attention and certainly those associated with paramilitary organizations directly or indirectly are sort of suggesting that there might be a return to violence. I would be very cautious about that uh, for several reasons, but um, I I don't think we're looking at a return to violence per se. But what I do think is very dangerous is that is pointed to not only by unionist politicians, but in the recent, you know, in the last Year it's being pointed to by UK government ministers as a sign for the need for the EU to move, and this is really dangerous territory for in an international agreement that you're finding some use in um, uh, the suggestion that violence might be used for political means in Northern Ireland, mm. because you're releasing things that are very difficult to control and contain again, and and as you mentioned. You know, the expectations amongst strong unionists now have exceeded those of even the DUP. So how does the DUP get to a point where they say, OK, we're willing to accept these minimal checks and controls, and now we're going to go back into the executive and be deputy first minister to Sinn Féin first minister? How on earth will they bring people with them um, in a context now where people have been... Um, completely wound up thinking that the union is under threat by this protocol and will be undermined as long as it exists. And what about on the nationalist side?
1: I mean, we talked about, obviously, unionists potentially. I mean, I think we're talking about UVF and what have you from the past mm-hmm. revival. But Sinn Féin, as we've already said, potentially in government in Dublin and certainly leading uh, in whatever government may come in Stormont, and their links to, obviously, the IRA in the past. Are nationalists also paramilitaries getting into gear?
0: So we saw similar hints of that during the withdrawal process. There was some dissident Republican activity. And, um, of course, we saw the death of Lyra McKee. is shocking in, in um, Derry, Londonderry. So um, there is that. But those the dissident Republicans are opposed to the... Um, Pro agreement stance of, of Sinn Fein. And funnily enough, Sinn Fein doesn't have to say very much amid all of this. What we've seen in um, the Northern Ireland Life and Times survey, which is taken every year, is that um, expectations of Irish unity are, have been increasing year on year. Now, 63% of people in Northern Ireland say that. united ireland is made more likely by brexit and that includes the plurality of unionists so in many ways um and interestingly enough in terms of people being in favor of it obviously irish nationalists say they're more in favor of it uh, but those in the middle the neither's say um they're you know the plurality now say they are more in favor of irish unity than they were before brexit so another reason for unionists to be concerned and another reason why sinn fein can see You know, democratic politics is working for them, um, albeit in a way not anticipated and in some ways, you know, um, bolstered by the activity of the UK government and and some unionist politicians, sadly. Um, So they don't really need to point to any um, paramilitary activity. They just need to keep on course. And as you mentioned before, try and show that they are a responsible party of government and that people could trust them in leadership both north and south. So does
2: that make uh, is there a point for for another election right now? Uh, is it going to resolve anything in the short term?
0: So it won't so at the moment in Northern Ireland we we don't have a government as you know but we don't even have a caretaker executive so we just have civil servants in place mm. and they're very constrained from making decisions. It's a really it's a terrible situation to be in, um, and the legacy of this will will take a long time to fix. Um, we don't, we won't be able to have a new executive unless there's emergency legislation passed until there's another election. Mm. Will that election change anything? Well, it looks, you know, more than likely the Sinn Fein would come out again as the largest party, possibly bolstered by the the activity of DUP. Um, um, annoying people for having held up the executive for for so many months now Um, we don't know where the DUP would be would it gain a seat maybe or would it lose seats we don't know and what would happen to the alliance party in the middle as well Um,
1: Well, the the, the alliance party is pretty weak or has been historically hasn't it
0: it it has, but this is the interesting thing. It's done very well since twenty nineteen. We, we should well say at-
1: this is a party that has no uh, affiliations Definitely. on either side of, of of the line, as it were.
0: Yeah, it's a central one. It's neither unionist nor nat- nationalist. It's non aligned. Um, they've done very well. They got seventeen seats, um, on doubling their seat number in the last in the assembly election. It's maddening for them because they haven't been able to take up those seats because the D P is. Mm-hmm. Vetoed even the sitting of the assembly by refusing to nominate a speaker. So that'll be interesting to see when we do have the election. Will alliance gain from, you know, maybe softer unionists and middle ground people being very annoyed mm. at behavior of the DUP? Um, or will they, you know, um, decline because people become once again disillusioned with politics and thinking it's, it's all not going to want
2: solve them. anything, is it? I mean, um, that's but but what, would, what would that center ground party, what what would their, their approach be to the border? Would they be saying, well, we have to accept it, but we'll, we'll just try and find like for a softer border uh, as, as, as the way forward is that I mean what because uh, the reason I'm asking this question is because we've only got a few minutes to go and unfortunately Katie last week on the podcast I said we would be solving the whole issue uh, in, we, this, no. in this half hour <laughs> and we only got three minutes so Just a so, bit so we're, we're, le- we're leaning on you now so what's the answer oh, gosh. Uh,
0: how to fix it yeah. <laughs> i mean certainly the so the alliance party is keen to see um a, a negotiated outcome from the uk and the eu with respect to the protocol for it to be adjusted in a way that sort of recognizes how integrated northern ireland is with the uk internal market um and all the parties are kind of agreed on that and the majority of people in northern ireland mm. the clear majority say that that's what they want as well i think we won't have uh You know, even if we do have an outcome, a positive outcome from the talks, unfortunately, that won't be the end. You need to have a a situation where people are are recognising that Brexit, unfortunately, guys, is going to be a long, long process and Northern Ireland will always be in a difficult position. So we're going to have to have structures for engaging directly with NI, with the stakeholders, with elected representatives to be able to constantly check to see how Northern Ireland is managing this very difficult position um unfortunately, though, as I say, as I said at the beginning, there is doubts around how we get those institutions up and running again, um, as long as they can be vetoed by either a unionist or a nationalist. Can, party. can I
1: suggest a, a scenario that seems to me fairly likely? I'd be interested to get your take on it, that and there is another election, as you say, perhaps the, the DUP weakens, if anything, the push towards uh, a more nationalist outcome seems very strong particularly to a lot of, of disillusioned unionists who then feeling themselves becoming the majority the minority are so frustrated that they do begin to talk about taking external action taking action outside the political arena and that this becomes the the narrative that moves forward which is a ghastly thought but it does seem to me at least uh, certainly a possibility what do you think
0: uh. I don't see it. I don't see that as a possibility. I think loyalists can be disruptive, but I think that their power comes through being listened to and by being useful to politicians. And I think it's a time for everybody to, you know, repeat the, the fundamentals of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, which is, you know, achieving political aspirations through political means only, democratic means only, and a wholesome commitment to that. And all the parties need to, be pushed on that. And the UK government in particular also needs to conform to what it promised to do under the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, which is exercise its power here with rigorous impartiality. And until we have have those basics being adhered to, then of course, there will be a worry around the future of this place and how some people will consider themselves justified in using violence to um, try and express protest.
2: So the UK government, of course, would say, you know, the EU are the ones that are slowing this process. They're sort of playing unnecessary hardball uh, when it comes to what they have to impose uh, on those border crossings. So I'm not sure who's right and who's wrong on that because everyone is blaming the other the other side, aren't they?
0: Yes. I mean, the thing is, these things are really, really technical. So we have seen the EU move several times even over the past couple of years on things such as um medicines in the first instance human medicines and also things like scrapies and stuff that um that you probably haven't heard in the headlines mm. um and we know that they're prepared to move again um but there will be limits to that of course um and the eu um obviously is looking at all 27 member states and of course associate members who are just looking to see well what special treatment is given to Northern Ireland because they don't necessarily see Northern Ireland as exceptional they're always thinking well what what concessions are being made to the UK um so um there's there's a lot of there's a careful balance there I think the question is you know where they find the where where those lines are drawn. And if the UK government decides to push on things such as the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice, which seem to be more into areas of principle rather than practical benefits to Northern Ireland, um, then then we could find ourselves in sticky mud again. Well, a small
1: part of the United Kingdom still, but does seem to create enormous problems way outside its uh, its scope uh, in all this as it often has. So Katie thank you so much for Good talk, Katie. taking us through all that and uh, let's hope that the outcome is rather more Optimistic, at least I thought it might
2: be. But thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Katie.
0: Thanks for having me. But
2: well, you know there was a uh, there was a glimmer of hope in there, wasn't there? That well, yes, if, if, and um, she's more optimistic than I was. But yeah, I, 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 well, I th- mean, th- you were ready for full scale. Well, you have well, been working too long in war no, zones. I think so this, this is, is this is the problem
1: fundamentally. Yeah. But yeah. no, I mean, you know, I, I've interviewed a lot of Northern Ireland politicians in the last few years. You mm. you do get a sense of real passion and 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 I think kind of. A tie into some doctrines that seem terribly old-fashioned to a lot of us. Yeah. Um, but in the end, economic reality may be the thing that trumps all of this. You know, as I say, even if they don't get their uh, yeah. their British brands in the shops, um, the fact is that maybe that, you know, this thing of living in both in the EU and outside the EU in terms
2: of goods is an advantage. Yeah, but you get you get It's just a question of how much you pay for it. I'm sure you can get your Branson pickle in the supermarket well, in, in Northern Ireland. Look, Katie was excellent, and yeah. uh, Lucy is joining us next week. She is yes. also excellent. We're going to talk about COP27, which is just about done and dusted. Was anything actually achieved? Well, that's uh, always the head-scratcher with these things. You know, the big headlines, but actually in
1: terms of real, concrete achievement and the UN Secretary-General saying this is kind of, you've got to do Out, or we are doomed. um, Being very apocalyptic, was
2: anything achieved?
1: Is Mm. it going to make any difference? That's what we're going to be
2: talking about. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week. And is it really, you know, front and center as as much as it should be? You know, with so much else going on. Uh, you know, during those COVID years, did we just ignore the planet? In, and do we think with the Ukraine war that, frankly, uh, it's more important to get energy for us than to think about how we produce it? Yeah, exactly. All of that next week on The Y Curve. Thanks for listening this week.
0: The Why Curve.